0: Hello, everyone. It's July 7th, 2020. This week, the Mars 2020 launch slips again. Let's hope it doesn't become Mars 2022. Also, we talked to Dr. John Z. Kiss about plants in space, and on Mars, and on the moon. Plants not on Earth. Okay, let's get to it and lift off. And we've the tower. Welcome to episode 267 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Yeah,
1: so I've got good news that I just heard. Um, we put in an mm-hmm. offer on a house this week, and it just got accepted. Yay! Awesome. Yay! Hey, yeah. Congratulations. So I'm officially moving to Bellefonte.
0: Well, actually, how do you say it? Is it Bellefonte or Bellefonte?
1: Yeah, I've actually heard both at now. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, so so people do say both, but from
2: what I've heard, like the townies have told me it's Bellefonte. Yeah. But um, I imagine I, there might be it might be a pop for soda kind of fighting words, you know. Yeah, you like I, I actually small person.
1: Right. <laughs> well, uh <laughs> our our realder lives in the town and calls it Belfont. So I mm. I hmm. like it's yeah, it's gonna be a little bit of a struggle to figure out what's more common and what feels better. Because 'Cause they're both mispronunciations. You know, (laughs) Belfont is closer to the French pronunciation. I think it's Mm -hmm. a French name It's named after the, the spring in the middle of town. But I, I think, I think it's French, which would be Mm Belfont. But if it's Italian, then Bella Fanta would be closer. So I don't know. But anyway, yeah. Got a house.
0: Mars 2020, the launch for that is slipping once again. So how many slips is this? How many slides three. backward? Three? Okay.
1: Yeah, and I can actually walk you through all three. So Mars 2020 was originally scheduled to launch July 17th, and then there was an issue with uh, a crane that was used uh, for launch vehicle processing. And I don't, I don't know what the issue was, but um, that pushed it from July 17th to July 20th. And then there was a concern that one of the ground support lines... Uh, was contaminated in um, one of the payload processing facilities. And so that pushed the date back to July 22nd. And now this this most recent slip is to investigate uh, off-nominal data from a liquid oxygen sensor line that they discovered during one of the wet dress rehearsals. I think we talked about this uh, last week um, of the Atlas V just did a, a wet dress rehearsal and they found out that one of these uh, sensors might be off. So that uh, is a much bigger slip from July 22nd. That pushes us back to July 30th. And that's where we sit right now. That is about half of the the launch slips or it's like the, the schedule, uh, flexibility about half of it's been eaten up. So, you know, we still have more room. Right now they're saying that their last, uh, launch opportunity is August 15th. Um, that is a bit of a fuzzy number. You know, if anybody's ever looked at a pork chop plot, you know, you can, uh, really, depending on, on what margins you want, you can really push these things around. So right now they're looking at what it would take to push farther into August past the 15th. What, what's interesting is, this isn't unique in any way, um, but the way that the orbital dyna- orbital dynamics work is it's uh, easiest to just keep the arrival date fixed, right? Because that means um, that you can land on the same spot. If you pick a different arrival date, you're, you're going to wind up landing somewhere else. Um, and so all of these launch opportunities um, include um, what I'm going to assume is a higher and higher and higher uh, C3, the farther away you go from their nominal, uh, launch date, which I'm assuming is the center of the window. Um, I think they'll probably start, uh, start their plans a little bit ahead of the, the perfect point so that if they slip, they're only slipping better, but they buy themselves a little more time than just initially starting at the perfect, uh, center. Cause, you know, we, we have, uh, we have some margins to eat into. So it's okay to start early or late. But anyway, all of these uh, different launch opportunities um, have a different C three, the the characteristic energy leaving the Earth, um, and so basically the vehicle will be going faster and faster and faster as it leaves the Earth, so that it swings, I believe it would be swings out farther. Oh, I guess no, no, you'd want to be closer to the Sun, so you'll um, you'll have a hot. Uh, maybe the maybe the C three won't change, and it'll just be the angle. Of the departure that changes. In any event, all of these launch opportunities include tweaks to the trajectory so that we can arrive at Mars on the same day, albeit from a slightly different angle. So there are going to be some tweaks that have to happen, but we can target the same landing spot. Um, But that's why Mm -hmm. they um, don't really have that much ability to push this around. Um, So August 15th is the last time that they're confident um, that they can launch and they're going to look for some Alternatives, and I think they're going to be having to make some uh, decisions about eating up margins if if they get pushed back farther. Um, and and the real reason that we want to launch this year, I mean, it may seem obvious, but if we slipped uh, 2022, which would be the next Mars window. Um, the cost is around five hundred million dollars.
0: So, that is that is that five hundred million dollars the total cost of the program up to that point? Is that how much it would be cumulatively, or is it, that, or is that would just be how much the it'll
1: additional cost? cost just to do the delay? Wow! Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it'd be really great if we could send a. Curiosity-class rover to Mars for $500 million.
0: I guess that's a good point. I guess it wasn't going to be $500 million. I just find it hard to believe that it would, just co- it would cost that much just to hold onto it for two years. Like, what are we doing that necessitates an extra half a billion dollars?
2: Storage, salaries. I guess um, storage, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's non-trivial. You can't let it just collect dust, you know. <laughs> yeah, but
1: the cost of procuring a new launch... Putting it in storage, taking it back out of storage, qualifying it after it's been in storage. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, so the total budget is, is somewhere around two and a half billion dollars. And so, you know, this is an appreciable chunk uh, of the mm-hmm. entire budget if, if we have to slip to 2022. So, but, but luckily none of these delays had anything to do with the vehicle. It's all ground support equipment. So that's fine. Uh, that's that's okay, we want to get this right, and these are all fixable things.
0: So apparently it was an issue with the second stage of the Atlas, but it has been fixed. It says that they have repaired it. So when is the next wet dress rehearsal? Yeah, that's a good question.
1: I'm not sure. Before the 30th. <laughs> right. So we had originally kind of four
2: missions to Mars, and the uh, European Space Agency's contribution, uh, ExoMars with the uh, Franklin rover, uh, that one had already been delayed uh Parachutes, I believe, was kind of one of the key issues, but COVID-19 certainly didn't help. And then the other two uh, missions, uh, one coming from the uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, is the Hope Mars mission, uh, which is still on track for a uh, launch uh, July 14th. We'll talk about that in upcoming launches. Um, JAXA will be taking that, hopefully, to the Red Planet on a 2 and, uh, Tianwen, uh, one, uh, which is China's, uh, Mars mission for this year is going, is still on track, uh, as far as I can tell for a launch, uh, later this month, July 23rd. And, um, something to keep in mind in addition to, uh, you know, costing half a billion dollars, uh, a slip to 2022 for the Mars 2020 mission, uh, might also have some ramifications for Mars sample return, right? Because that's kind mm-hmm. of one of the key science goals of this is to go and, you know, collect a bunch of samples and then leave these little vials all over you know just litter the surface and then have a, uh, a fetch rover go and scoop them up and ultimately get them back to earth it's it's a long multi-step thing uh it's still you know it's not as though the spacecraft and that much hardware has been built uh if anything for the mars sample return missions but if they're you know aiming for launches in 2026 then kind of getting uh perseverance uh on the ground rolling around scooping up samples will be uh better to have that sooner rather than later so Mm -hmm. keep that in mind (laughs) it's counting there's other missions counting on perseverance and plus we all want to see the helicopter.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's going to be fantastic. And I I feel bad because, um, you know, I saw a couple of people on, uh, on Reddit saying, Oh, I can't wait to see video of a, of a helicopter on Mars. And I'm just like, you're not, you're not going to see the video that you want. You're not going to see, you know, 4k, uh, 60 frames a second video. It's not going to happen. Uh, you're going to, we're going to get some nice gifs, but, uh, be a little frame rate, but yeah, that, uh, that little, uh, helicopter is so cool because I think, you know, everybody is excited about the idea. Um, and a lot of people are like, well, why didn't we do this sooner? And it's like, well, cause it's hard. Um, yeah. Stice says there's no IMAX camera on board, uh, Perseverance, but yeah, uh, it's, it's going to be cool. And hopefully, um, flyers on Mars is going to be something that we see more often. You know, this is, uh, a real proof of concept.
0: It's still remarkable that you can get anything to fly on Mars like that because it has, mm-hmm. this, you know, it's just such a thin atmosphere. So this is a very impressive helicopter, mm-hmm. I have to say.
1: Yeah, I, I think those the the blades spin like in fractional Mach numbers, like yeah, <laughs> really, really fast.
2: The lower gravity helps you, but probably not as much as the reduction right. in atmospheric
1: pressure. Yeah, at- atmosphere hurts you more exactly.
2: And I was also going to say, I think I thought it was a, a great point. Uh, Jake Robbins from the wonderful We Martians podcast. I believe he was uh, making it uh, or drawing analogies to how uh, Pathfinder was really kind of a Pathfinder, just having a very, very small rover with very, very, very basic, you know, not even really doing so much science. It's just kind of an engineering proof of concept and how that paved the way for, you know, these amazing rovers we've had uh, in the intervening years. And so if uh, the ingenuity Mars helicopter could play a similar role for you know next generation bigger rotorcraft but i have to imagine though there's probably a, probably a lot harder to scale them up though again given the difficulties of flying around on
1: mars but yeah and uh blade tip speed is mach 0.7 um and obviously you can't have a, a helicopter blade spinning at mach 1 uh the aerodynamics don't work right and so that you know that's why helicopters have a speed limit you know they they cannot fly faster than a certain speed just due to that rotational speed limit but yeah so so dennis um i just wanted to point out you you mentioned um the return the sample return and that i believe right now the concept is a lander with a tiny fetch rover next to it so we're not talking about you know this whole sample return rover that kind of uh, wanders, you know, it can land close enough and then the whole thing goes. No, they have to land close to one of these samples, bring in the lander, and then they don't have that much of a radius that they can actually fetch within. Um, and that's a very interesting limitation. You know, potentially we may be talking about a lander with no fetch rovers. So you have to land, you know, within your arms radius. But I think that's a, that's asking a bit much because, you know, then you'd have to land next to a sample canister that could get blown away by your landing jets.
2: I Um, don't think they'd be able to do that. Yeah, (laughs)
1: that's, and, and these, these, um, sample containers, we, we know what they look like, right? Cause they are packed up and, uh, and waiting on, on, uh, perseverance and you know they're they're just like little metal test tubes they're really tiny
2: and 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 then and that's actually right step what 2 of 4 <laughs> right step 3 would be getting the uh the, the return uh, spacecraft to take off from Mars's surface into low Martian orbit to rendezvous with the ultimate return spacecraft which would then have to head back to earth and so
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, i've done it's, an Kerbal
1: space program it's not that hard <laughs>
2: she gets you on the team <laughs>
1: Well, it's cool that we can do this ahead, you know, collect those samples while we're still designing and building a return vehicle.
2: You know, you say that, I I really do appreciate that they are doing that.
1: You
0: know what
2: I
1: mean?
0: Yeah,
2: thinking ahead. Yeah, I I really like that they're just, you know, even though the return spacecraft, the different steps of them don't exist yet, let's just get the ball rolling on this. Let's get samples on the surface and then really kind of give an impetus and a drive for us to follow through with the, the, the sample collection and the return.
1: Well, I'm adding to my uh, space Reddit bingo card uh, a square that's just somebody asks, why don't we put samples on the uh, on the helicopter and have it jump into a parabolic uh, arc? And then uh, that way the the return vehicle doesn't have to land. It can just swoop down rendezvous and because, <laughs> you know, somebody's going to suggest that if it hasn't already happened.
0: Let's do three short and sweet. What's the first one, Dennis?
2: First up, Rocket Lab unfortunately suffers a second-stage failure and loss of vehicle. After 12 consecutive successful launches from its New Zealand spaceport, SmallSat launch provider Rocket Lab suffered an anomaly during its second-stage burn. The mission, named PIX or It Didn't Happen, was carrying seven payloads for planet, cannon electronics, and in-space missions. Shortly before T-plus-six minutes and the vehicle's hot swap to a new battery, On-screen telemetry stopped showing an increasing velocity and the engine bell visibly cooled. Soon the frozen footage was cut since then, founder and CEO Peter Beck has apologized to his customers and announced the company is currently working with the FAA to identify the cause of the loss of
0: And hopefully we'll be talking about this more in the coming weeks because I would like right. to discuss or more about it, yeah. But for right now, it is definitely a mystery. Anyway, uh, next up, ULA receives its first BE-4. Blue Origin has delivered its first Pathfinder BE-4 engine to ULA. The engine will be one of two that will power the first stage of ULA's Vulcan Centaur. The second engine should be soon to follow. There is no confirmed date on when the ULA will be receiving its first production quality engine. Other hardware is already in production and the first flight is scheduled for 2021. ULA has expressed some frustration over the engine development timetable. The Vulcan rocket must be in service by then if ULA is to win a lucrative Space Force contract next year.
1: Alright, and last up, uh, the first indigenous-owned ground station is to be built in Australia. Indigenous Business Australia, or IBA, will fund two new commercial satellite ground stations in Alice Springs in the north of the country the station will be built project managed and owned by indigenous companies and a commercial partner and will form part of viasat's quote-unquote real-time earth network these state-of-the-art stations will contribute to a network capable of reducing the latency for high-resolution earth observation imagery from hours to just minutes and will also be able to help with disaster management environmental monitoring and search and rescue operations the real mvps the ground stations
0: yeah Something that Australia is like really good at. <laughs> lots of room for ground stations.
2: Sample and, and returns. Lots of
1: quiet room. All right, and welcome to the interview segment today we have dr john z kiss professor of biology and the dean of the college of arts and sciences at the university of north carolina greensboro uh hi john how's it going good how are you doing oh pretty good welcome to the show so i guess we'd like to start off with a quick overview of who you are and what you have to do with space
3: well i'm uh i'm a faculty member in biology and as you said, I serve as dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, I have worked with NASA at some level since 1987. And I've been fortunate enough to be the principal investigator of eight different spaceflight experiments. So we, we had a publicist get in touch and
1: say, hey, John would be good on your show. And we're just like, oh, yeah, actually, uh, that's really cool. So we're really happy to have you here. So one of the things that we're really interested in is what, it feels like to work um, in the space industry. And so I was hoping you could kind of give us a human perspective of what it takes to get an experiment to ISS and what the process of applying for space, you know, payload space on ISS or on shuttle feels like, and then what it feels like to get that data back and process data from an experiment that you're never going to see in person again?
3: Yeah, well, that's a really good question. First of all, let me say that there are different ways to get payloads uh, into space with, with NASA. So there are educational opportunities right now, actually, with the ISS and the National Lab. There are lots of student-based projects. There are business opportunities. And the way I've gotten on is really through basic uh, scientific peer review. And what that means is um, I submit a proposal to NASA, and it's, it's reviewed by experts in the field. Now, sometimes it's actually been reviewed by international experts, not just people from the NASA side, depending on the call. And the proposal gets a certain scientific score. This is pretty much like any other kind of peer-reviewed science in the United States and Europe and other countries. The difference is Uh, After the proposal gets this basic science score, and it's worthy of science from a scientific point of view, then what's considered is sort of a technical review, and is it a feasible experiment to do in space, depending on the limitations, the hardware, the specific conditions. So it's essentially a two-step process. So that's the technical side. What it feels like is it's really cool. It's it's been it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've always enjoyed. Uh, it's it's a lot of work to get your experiment ready for space. But first of all, being at the launch is an incredible experience. It's always incredible. But when when you know your own um, samples, in my case, it was always seeds. When I knew my seeds were being launched up to uh, either on the shuttle or up to the ISS on the shuttle or via SpaceX. It's, it's really exciting. And I feel very privileged because then you have this really unique data set that is really fascinating. And uh, it's given us some tremendous insights into uh, developmental plant biology.
1: So I think everybody who works with space feels that level of excitement. Do you feel any pressure to act uh, blasé and professional or is it just uninhibited joy?
3: Well, people who know me will say it's uninhibited joy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, um, no, I, I get I get really excited about it. I just, uh, uh, again, I've, I've had um, several of these and I, I still get very excited and I hope to have some more experiments, but no, I haven't lost the sense of wonder and excitement. It, it's really a cool thing to do. So I'm
2: curious uh, about some of your experiments in more detail. I did a little bit of reading on them, and I saw, um, were the latest ones these seedling growth experiments, one and two?
3: One, two, and actually we did three. Yeah, it was a three-part experiment. Oh, wow. Could you, could you describe that in a little more detail for us? Sure. So this was a really exciting project on the International Space Station. And one of the, the problems with a lot of space research, and no pun intended, it's a one-shot deal, uh, I've been fortunate in that my experiments have built upon previous experiments that I've done. This project was done in collaboration with, uh, between NASA and the European Space Agency. So I was the American NASA PI, and my colleague, uh, Javier Medina, from Madrid was the European PI. And we kind of combined our interest and expertise to come up with a a pretty unique project. Uh, Essentially, we're interested in the interaction between gravity and light in plant development. And ironically, um, when you fly things in space, you could really study a a true light effect because on Earth, gravity and light always interact. So if you take away the gravity, you could study a pure light effect. And because of that, we've made some really interesting discoveries in terms of how plants sense light. The other part of our project I think that was really fascinating was, not only were we interested in microgravity, we're interested in reduced or fractional gravity. And what I mean by that is particularly the levels on the Moon and Mars. So we okay. actually know a lot about plants in terms of their growth and development in microgravity. We know very little about plants in terms of uh, how development is affected on the Moon and, and Mars levels. So the, the level of gravity on Mars, for instance, is 1,6 G. Uh, Mars is three 8 G. So 1,6 G on moon and 3,8 G. And this really brings, what brings it home is if you think about those pictures of the astronauts in the Apollo era, they're hopping around the moon with like a two, 300 pound backpack uh, on earth, but of course it weighs much less on the moon. So uh, that's a really nice illustration of that. And we've used centrifuges on the International Space Station to create artificial gravity. So we could do our experiments in microgravity, we could do them at one-six G, 3,8 G, and uh, we could also do a 1 G control.
2: I could see that the importance of being able to you know, probe reduced gravity on the ISS since, uh, if I remember correctly, right, the only kind of ways you can do that here on Earth are for relatively short term experiments like if you go on the uh uh, the vomit comet right or reduced uh gravity aircraft things like that that's
3: a good question too is a lot of people you know they think there's some magic anti-gravity machine and and there really isn't there (laughs) there you know there are um these analogs or simulators uh but true weightlessness you could get it in um obviously in low Earth orbit, you talked about the parabolic flights with a very pleasant nickname that you mentioned. <laughs> and in, in, in those parabolic flights, which are done by NASA and the European Space Agency, they're actually pretty interesting. You get like 20 seconds of microgravity, but you kind of have to pay for it because you also have hypergravity. So the plane does these parabolas. It, it goes up, it essentially turns off the... it's engine, it's in free fall, and then it has to climb back up again. And the reason people get sick is because uh, of that transition from microgravity to, to 2G. And they usually do like 30 to 50 parabolas on those campaigns.
0: Oh wow, I didn't realize there's was quite that many. <laughs> so, what have you learned so far? Or I guess your your knowledge is pretty limited at this point. But have you been able to find any differences between like what might happen if you grew a plant on Mars as opposed to the Moon or Earth or microgravity?
3: Yeah, that's uh, we have some really exciting re- results about this, um, and you know, it's it's they are li- limited in the sense that it's for the parameters we looked at. But I'll give you the short version here is when we looked at um, gravity sensing and um, light sensing, what we found was that there's a certain way that plants will respond to, to light in um, microgravity. On the moon, they respond exactly the same way. And both the microgravity and the moon level of gravity is different than the way they would respond on Earth. However, interestingly, at least for the parameters we looked at, the Mars level of gravity is uh, sufficient for the plant to behave like it would behave on Earth. So the conclusion is, at least for the parameters we looked at, growing plants on, on the Moon is gonna be different in terms of gravity, but growing plants on, uh, on Mars, at least in terms of gravity, um, is gonna be pretty similar to the Earth parameters. And there's some other investigators who've done some experiments on this and found pretty much the same results we did using a different model system than we used. So I think that's the real opportunity of the ISS is we are interested in going to moon Mars and we should take advantage of the research facilities to help prepare us for that.
0: And so the difference, just to be clear, is that the way that the plants respond to light in various levels of gravity?
3: Yes. Yeah, we studied how plants respond to light at different levels of gravity, and again we found that microgravity and the moon level were indistinguishable and essentially Mars and Earth were indistinguishable and that was I think it's a re- one of our most fascinating results we've had to date.
0: Yeah, that's so weird. Hmm.
1: So so does microgravity just turn off phototropism like what's the what's the connection?
3: Well, I mean Again, so if if you think about a plant on Earth, it gets lots of environmental cues. The two most important ones are gravity and light. And essentially, we have this opportunity to study. We're taking away gravity, so um, you could you could really learn about pure light effects. You could make an extreme statement that you really can't. The the study of um, how plants. Will bend toward light is called phototropism, and this is something we're all familiar with. If you have house plants, you know you have to rotate many of them because they'll bend toward the light. But mm-hmm. when they're bending toward the light, there's an effect of gravity. But in microgravity, there's no gravity effect, so you could really study a pure phototropic effect.
1: So, so when you're saying that plants grow similarly in zero g and and moon level gravity, it's the key there is that phototropism is so dominant that they don't look like plants growing on earth because they're not even really paying attention to the moon's level of gravity
3: right yeah that's a good way of putting it i would agree with your summary
1: so so like i guess if i have a house plant on my moon base like that plant is going to be growing sideways for a quarter of the month sideways the other way for a quarter right like what what do we have to prepare for and worry about if we're trying to grow plants productively on the moon?
3: Well, let, let me put it more broadly. Um, I mean, when, when we look at um, sort of moon and Mars, you know, there's many, many challenges to, to growing plants and, and to greenhouses on, on both of those mm-hmm. planets. The I've just been focusing on one parameter. Um, a real big factor and I think a huge problem Uh, both on Moon and Mars, is uh, the radiation effects. I mean, there's no atmosphere. Mars does have a pretty wimpy atmosphere compared to the Earth's, but there's really not much shielding that we get on Earth from these high-energy particles. And, uh, you know, so there's many factors, and those high-energy particles are, are, are a real concern because they could affect mitosis and other cellular reproduction. So I guess it's hard to ask your question. To answer your question, <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I've am i been, you know, to be clear, I try to, as a scientist, I try to focus on, um, you know, parameters I can isolate. And hmm. if, if I could say something more broadly about that is, so I think um, uh, what I study are really basic parameters of, of plant biology. And I think the reason NASA is interested in it is in the long term, we want to grow plants on moon and certainly on Mars. And it's real basic knowledge. That will uh, help us do that. There are other people, uh, particularly at NASA, who focus on, you know, crop yield and optimization and atmospheres and things like that. So uh, I've I've just had a really unique opportunity to focus on this interaction between gravity and light, and frankly, do experiments that no one's been able to do on Earth.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm sorry, my Question did come across as very broad, but. I'm I'm wondering, like, from your from your research, what are the? I mean, obviously, you can't draw broad conclusions, but what does your research tell us to expect when we're growing plants specifically on the moon? Because I didn't realize that the moon's gravity was so low that it actually behaved much like microgravity,
3: at least for the yeah the things we studied. Well, I I just think it what what it what it tells you is it, it's sort of like if we're gonna it, it's something you could sort of almost check off like. For Mars, it's going to be, um, you know, the, the gravity is not going to be a problem. On, on the moon, it's going to be a problem. So you, you might have to, I don't know, mitigate that in certain ways and, and be more conscious of the orientation of your, of your light. Of course, you know, the moon also has a really weird, you know, the other problem there with greenhouses is you have essentially 12 and a half days of, of light and 12 and a half days of darkness. And the Mars day is much more like the Earth day. So that's another huge, huge factor.
1: Yeah. I'm just trying to imagine like an actual greenhouse that's exposed to the sun or, you know, includes enough sunlight that the angle does change over the span of a month. And like, that's kind of what I'm imagining is like, you know, maybe one day we're going to have plants that can tolerate that and, you know, potentially tolerate it in the sense that we don't need to give them additional light. Um, and dark cycles. The idea of crops that lean back and forth over the span of a month just kind of cracks me up a little bit.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you might have to also, the, the, the possibilities you have are you could design plants either through classical breeding or genetic engineering to survive these light cycles or, or maybe you know, modify the beha- um, their behavior toward gravity. That's another possibility in the long term.
0: But it would seem to me that if you have an environment where you're getting light directly from the sun, then you also do have to worry about radiation, like you said. And that's like a big right. problem. It's, because It's definitely way
1: off
3: there, isn't it?
0: That's going to kill all the plants before they ever have a chance to grow I mean, it seems to me that that would be a, a huge problem. Well, and But I guess you could filter that out maybe.
3: Yeah, radiation is a, is a huge problem. And if you think about, um, I think good science fiction has been really predictive of some things that have happened in in space. You know, there's the classic example of Jules Verne and the journey to the moon, who in the late 1800s predicted a spaceship would lift off from central Florida with three astronauts. That was pretty good prediction. Uh, But I've seen some interesting science fiction um, where they talk about like these um, greenhouses on Mars and what they have is essentially they're underground because of all the radiation effects And what they do is they um, use fiber optics and other methods to pipe the, the light to underground so they could get mm. the light without the radiation. Mm. So
1: before we get off your actual experiments, I was hoping you could describe seedling growth one, two, and three, like in physical terms. Like if we were to see this experiment, what does it look like and what is it composed of?
3: We, we had to develop, um, we developed hardware to grow um, seedlings of, uh, the plant we use is called the Rabinopsis uh, thaliana. It doesn't really have a common name, NASA. Kind of wanted a common name, and someone found one from the older literature. It's called the mouse-eared cress. It's not cress. It's it's a very small plant in the mustard family, and it was the reason we used this plant. Is um, it has no real agricultural value, but whatever we learn from this plant, we could apply to crop plants. It was the plant for which we had the first um, complete genome sequenced. And there's a lot of uh, knowledge about molecular data. Um, there's, no, um, there's no space in space, so space is very limited. And um, the seedlings are very small. They, we we sent up seeds and um, the seedlings developed into um, small, I'm sorry, the seeds germinated and they developed into seedlings that were maybe an inch to an inch and a half, but because of this, we could have a very large sample size. You know, science is all about N number, repeatability. And in our first seedling growth experiment, we, we had um, 24 of these experimental containers, and it had... Uh, roughly uh, 1,600 seeds, and most of them germinated. So um, the the containers, uh, the 24 containers, trying to think they're about half the size of a shoebox, and they weighed about, um, oh, I knew it in kilograms, something like four or five kilograms. And most of that was the um, the water delivery system, all the things to keep the plants growing, the atmospheric control, and the The biomass of the plants was very small. It was pretty similar in seedling growth one and two. We did different gravity levels. And the reason we had seedling growth one and two essentially was to have a broader continuum of gravity levels. Seedling growth three was a little bit different. We had a new piece of hardware uh, where we are able to chemically uh, fix the plants and uh, bring them back to Earth for microscopic analysis.
1: Yeah, which is like really cool to have that experiment returned, did you get to see the, they're called cassettes, right? The, uh-huh. the actual growth chambers. Did you actually get to see any of those cassettes in person?
3: Well, it's even better. I, You know, we, we have two kinds of data from the experiments. We had almost real-time data or near real-time. We had video downlinks uh, that um, we saw the whole experiment from the seed germination to development of the seedlings and we did the different light and gravity treatments. So we had a pretty good handle of what was happening during the experiment, real time or almost real time. And then um, at the end, we got the samples back um, in this fixative. In seedling growth one and two, we also got the samples back, but there we um, we froze them at minus 80. We got back the frozen samples. So yeah, I I saw them uh, before and after and during. So
1: are you familiar with the design of the cassette? Like, could I ask you questions about the actual physical design of it?
3: You can. Can I say some general things about it though? Yeah, we use this uh, facility. It's called the EMCS, the European Modular Cultivation System. You know, it's an international space station. The facilities are shared, so the European Space Agency and NASA had a deal, and we had an American PI and a European PI principal investigator, my friend and colleague, Javier. So the Europeans provided sort of the big machine, the growth chamber, but we had to work with NASA to design the, um, they call it the EUE, Experimental Unique Equipment. And um, sort of our team worked with NASA to, uh, to design those, the cassettes and uh, everything. The experimental container was essentially a box and we had to design the guts of the box.
1: That's really interesting. I didn't I didn't know that that was the way that that had been coordinated. That's that's actually really fascinating to me. So had the EMCS been flown before? Has it been flown after? Like what how much did you have to squeeze in there?
3: So the EMCS uh was um was launched in 2006 and uh we were the first experiment on there. It was a precursor to seedling growth called tropy And uh, we were the first PIs. We ended up having five experiments. Um, I think uh, these are rough numbers. I think there were a total of maybe 12 experiments. And there were um, another um, four or five principal investigators. There was a group from Japan that used it. There was a group from Norway that used it. There was a French group that used it. And two other American groups that used it. And um, the EMCS was, um, it, it supposedly had a a life of five years, but it lasted about 11 or 12 years and it was finally decommissioned. Mm,
0: nice. So how did you become interested in this research as a botanist? Because uh, obviously it's not something that I think most botanists consider when they start <laughs> mm-hmm. their career.
3: <laughs> well, yeah. So I, I've always been interested in NASA. W- one thing I like to say is sort of my life is the space age. I was born in 1960. And I remember when, as a nine-year-old, the excitement of the lunar landing and Neil Armstrong and the astronauts hopping around. I didn't know that their backpacks weighed two or 300 pounds then. And I didn't know about fractional gravity. So I was always interested in space. And uh, my PhD is from Rutgers University and most scientists, or who want to go into academia and even other fields, after their PhD, they do a postdoc, which is kind of the equivalent of a medical residency. And I I looked around um, and I I just saw this project at Ohio State that was funded. It was for ground based research that was funded by NASA. And it just sounded really cool to me. And it was about um, all ground based studies. Looking at how plants perceive gravity. It was a gravity perception project. And ever since then, I've been working with NASA. When I became an assistant professor and independent investigator, uh, I did one of these proposals. I thought there's no way it was ever going to be funded. And it was funded (laughs) and selected Mm -hmm. for a space project. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I, you know, I've been interested in um, my career really has focused on. Uh, how um, environmental factors affect plant development and the control of that. And that really fits in well with some of the broader interests of NASA. It's been a fun ride. So one of the questions that we often get
1: from our listeners um, is a question from either new college students or high schoolers who are getting ready to apply to colleges. The question that they ask us is, how do I get into space? Or else it's, how do I pick what field I want to go into, so that I can get into space flight um, and, and make space a career. And I was wondering if you had career advice, or you know, if you could, if you could help direct young people who are interested uh, in doing space as a career.
3: Well, I, I think that's a really good question, and I do some general talks to community groups over the years, and I I always tell students. Um, It's the same thing I tell them as a professor and as dean is find out what you're passionate about and study that. I mean, you know, as you said, like botany seems like a real um, strange way to get into space research, but it worked for me. Right. And I didn't I didn't go into it and say, well, I really want to do space work. I went into it as um, I want to study um, science. I'm interested in technology. That is what I studied and uh, I did well with that. And then it worked into the, uh, I had this opportunity with NASA and I took that. I mean, there's so many great opportunities now for, for students and who are interested in space. NASA has all sorts of internships. They have internships for high school students, for college students. Um, they have funding for grad students. And I've had students take, um, take advantage of all of that. But I, I don't think, I, I just think it sounds maybe like a, a dated concept, but it's not. It's like you, you really just have to find something that you're passionate about and go with that. And that's the advice I give to any student. I mean, I've seen students who have certain pressure from parents like, you know, you need to be pre-med because that's a great field. Well, it probably is a great field, but you have no interest in science. You have no interest in, in, um, in being around people who are ill. It's probably not a good thing for you to do, but, and even, you know, people, uh, little kids ask me, you know, like, well, what do I need to, to, to d- become an astronaut? And, you know, it used to be that to be an astronaut, you have to be like a fighter pilot. Well, I mean, most of the, most of these, um, the astronauts now in the International Space Station era, certainly there are pilots among them, but almost all of them have PhDs. And they, some of them have PhDs in engineering, some in physics. Uh, Some in biology. So, um, the astronaut corps is looking for people who are very broadly trained and highly educated.
1: So, John, one of the things that you sent us before we did this interview um, was your TEDx talk. And first off, I want to point out that you mentioned the Martian, and we love the Martian on this show. So, thank you for that. And you. Talked about how a um will help get us to Mars, and we talked a little bit about about how that's going to happen. Um, but another thing that you mentioned in that TEDx talk was that life might have originated on Mars, and it was it was just a passing comment. But I'd really love to hear your take uh, on. I guess that counts as transpermia, right?
3: I, yeah, it's been called that. Well, I, I I have to say, you know, it's it's something that um, I'm a, a plant biologist. Um, I'm a space biologist. I am interested in all sorts of anything about space. Like I have a whole library of books um, about the history of the American Soviet space program. And so, and I I go to these general talks about space. So I really don't know very much about um, from a personal, my personal research about life originating on Mars. Before I made that statement, I actually checked with, um, Several friends and colleagues who are pl- what I would call planetary scientists who who've been looking for you know uh, life primarily on Mars, but I I think it's a very credible theory is that life might have originated on on Mars and and came to uh, Earth by um, an asteroid or, or piece of Mars breaking off and becoming a meteorite, and the reason for that there's a the, One of the um, chief pieces of evidence that's cited is people have studied the conditions on early Earth and early Mars, and the conditions were more favorable on early Mars for life to form. For life to form on Earth was was very unusual, and a lot of that has to do with, like, elemental composition. So Mars is uh, richer in molybdenum, which I can barely say, and boron. And those two things are very important in, um, for instance, in photosynthetic pigments and, and mechanisms. And photosynthesis uh, also is very important for broad scale life because we need oxygen. So uh, that's kind of my extent of the knowledge of it. But I, I think it's, I, I just think it's a fascinating way to, to to think about Mars. I mean, I think there are many reasons to go to Mars, but I think the fact that there might be life there now or there was life, is a very important reason, but it is possible that we're all Martians.
0: So yeah, you have talked about Arabidopsis, but um, how about some other plants? Like what might be best suited for growth on Mars or maybe even the moon? Like, have you learned about what crops or other plants that might be more useful that might also be able to grow in such an environment?
3: Well, I, I mean, the again, my research has, has focused on Arabidopsis because I'm interested in basic mechanisms Uh, There are people at NASA, and this is all sort of secondhand knowledge, but there are people who've, um, for instance, um, they were actually looking more at growing plants in limited um, confinement, such as maybe the trip to Mars. And they were like developing varieties of uh, wheat. So there's like a super dwarf wheat variety that was developed by researchers for, for kind of this purpose. Um, people have looked at sweet potatoes. People have looked at radishes. It's kind of interesting. The Russians are are a lot more pra- practical. A lot of their research on the uh, space station and space, they wanted to eat this stuff. <laughs> and uh, I think they were the ones who did a lot with, with with radishes. So the, there's actually a kind of a funny story. There was a, I think this was in the, it was a joint Soviet or, or Russian American project and they grew radishes. And what happened was um, the radishes developed pretty well and they had all these parameters and the scientists were really excited. And then all of a sudden the data stopped and someone said, well, what happened to the data? And uh, the cosmonauts looked Embarrassed, and they said it just we hadn't had fresh vegetables. And it it smelled so good. We decided to have it in our salad that evening. So there goes the scientific experiment. But yeah, I think people have worked on um, on, on different kinds of uh, crops. I, I think right now the question is, I, I still think you know, in low Earth orbit and the moon is close enough to deliver supplies. Where we're really going to need to look at crop plants and maybe medicinal plants is when we go to Mars and we decide to stay there, it becomes more of an issue.
2: Yeah. So John, I'm curious, kind of like, what are the next steps research-wise, really?
3: For, for me or, or in general?
2: How about both? Uh, you <laughs> and then generally, maybe.
3: So I think, you know, what's been kind of interesting is I think there's been a desire to go to um, Mars for a long time. And, you know, if you look at the history of the space program I mean, in the late 60s, early 70s, all the predictions were, well, clearly we're going to be on Mars by like 1980. And <laughs> and we haven't been on the moon since 1972. And I think one of the things NASA and the international partners have to decide is they keep alternating between moon and Mars. So for a while it was Mars, forget about the moon. Right now, the current paradigm is, okay, we're going to go to the moon to help help us develop the technologies for Mars. My personal opinion, is that, well, that's interesting, but we've been to the moon. I think it, it's more interesting to go to Mars. And I, But it, it's been very confusing. If you look at the history of this over the last 30 years, uh, it's, it's just really unclear what the goals are. So we have to kind of crystallize the goals and maybe it's just impossible with a four year presidential cycle to, to do that. Having said that, um, I'm kind of jumping on the moon bandwagon. Um, I'm working with a, a planetary scientist, Chris McKay at NASA Ames and some colleagues and we're trying to develop a a small growth habitat to grow plants on the moon to test some of our ideas. And we've proposed it and the proposal has been rejected, but um, that happens a lot in science. you get rejected, you have to be resilient and we're revising it and um, I'd like to uh, I like to go. If we're going to go to the moon, I might as well go there—not me, but at least my plants—and uh, that's one of the projects I've been working on. That's really cool.
2: And 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 is and is this uh, kind of this is this related to uh, some of your research I'd seen with? I believe uh, she's your postdoc, uh, Tatiana Shimanovich.
3: Yes. We first of all, well, actually, we we've had two kinds of proposals into NASA. Uh, Chris, my collaborator, is uh, he's a NASA scientist. So he's eligible for some intramural programs, and he's a great planetary scientist. So our, our research really complements each other very well. So we've had some proposals that um, you know, they're talking about the human space exploration, but as a precursor to that, there are going to be some robotic robotic landers that are going to the moon. And we have a proposal to put this little plant growth chamber as part of one of the robotic landers. We also have another approach is as a precursor to sending these things to the moon, we want to test these growth chambers on the on the International Space Station uh, because you mm-hmm. could get the 1G. So um, the paper that you referred to with Tatiana, my current postdoc, there's lots of things we're doing to get ready. And one is we were looking at different strains of Arabidopsis to see what would be the most optimal for uh, a moon-based experiment. Which strain is it? <laughs> well, right now the, the the evidence we have is it's uh, it's a great name for NASA. It's the Columbia strain, which is originally from yeah. <laughs> uh, it's actually originally from Poland.
1: And so th- this was going to be a one U sized experiment, right?
3: It was uh, that sort of. Um, I mean, the the one U is because of the CubeSat comp concept. We have some other concepts out there. Uh, it might be a little bit bigger than than 1U. It is possible to do 1U. I would personally prefer something a little bit bigger so we could have some more uh, data collection.
2: If, if I understood correctly, one of the issues, especially with a 1U sized experiment, is kind of getting the thermal control, right? And being able to...
3: Right. So the temperature on the moon um, fluctuates dramatically depending on the day or night and it's i don't remember the exact numbers but it's it's like uh you know minus 200 something celsius uh at night and like 230 celsius during the day so you know when the astronauts were walking on the moon their backpacks were essentially air conditioners it was it was boiling yeah. hot out there i mean really hot so it really depends where these landers Go and the kind of thermal control that's possible. We're pretty excited about the, um, uh, there's some talk of some of the missions are going to go to the South Pole. And there are places on the South Pole that have almost constant illumination. It's sort of like a dim sunlight. And we could live with that. The nice thing about that is it's a pretty stable temperature. And I, I don't, don't remember what the temperature is, but it's, it's, it's not a really extreme temperature. So we could could deal with that in terms of developing or designing the hardware. One of the things I want to say is it's it's really interesting to work on the hardware because it's really a collaboration between um, engineers and scientists. I learned this early on is engineers and scientists have very different cultures. And um, we've had to kind of navigate through that. I was very fortunate. I had a colleague, uh, Richard Edelman, and he's a, a biologist, but he really understood um, engineering and hardware development really well. And having someone like him on my team was really valuable because I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm, I like gadgets, but I'm not a super gadget guy, whereas he was. And from the NASA side, you know, it's the converse, you're, you're looking for people who are um, really good uh, engineers, but who have some appreciation from the science. I mean, you could take an extreme point of view, as I've heard some engineers say, well, I don't want you to put those dirty biological materials so you mess up my pristine hardware. And for if it were up to them, they just fly the hardware up and down with nothing in it. <laughs> and that's kind of an extreme <laughs> point of view. And the scientists want the greater, and I was like this too, we wanted the greatest complexity. So you have to kind of compromise and all this has also taught me, you know, we in in higher education we talk about interdisciplinary approaches, and my approaches have been really interdisciplinary and you really needed the scientists and engineers to come together to make these experiments work. And just like the experiments we're I'm proposing now, you know, I'm a biologist and I'm trying to work with a planetary scientist who views all these things very differently, but it's really exciting to have that. So I just wanted to add that part about the Mainly about the you know design, the hardware, and the two different cultures. All
1: right, well, great. Thank you so much for uh, joining us for this uh, almost an hour. Um, It's been really great to talk to you. Our our two final questions are uh, sort of traditional. So the penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet?
3: Well, I uh, I'm pretty active on uh, on Twitter and uh, I tweet about the space program and botanical topics. Uh, I'm also on on LinkedIn. And I have uh, um, a faculty page at uh, the university, at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And I'm very proud of my TEDx talk about uh, why we need to go to Mars and how plants will help get us there.
1: Great. Uh, Links will be in the show notes. And uh, I hope you go check out more uh, of, of John's work. So, John, our final question
2: for you, let's say you're, uh, whether you're heading to Leo or the moon or Mars, um, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be?
3: (laughs) It won't be my cell phone, that's for sure. Um, So, um, (laughs) wow, one object in space, a video of The Martian, the film The Martian. uh, Hmm.
2: Awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, especially a trip to Mars, right? That's going to be quite a quite a ride. So, well, great,
1: thank you so much uh, for your time, John. It's been an absolute pleasure.
3: Well, it was a pleasure talking to you guys. You asked some some very good questions. Yeah, likewise. Thank you.
1: You had some very good
3: answers.
0: <laughs> so, this weekend's spaceflight history. Um, <laughs> We have several winners. We have Colin in the chat, the Greek, Ben Hallert, and Alejandro Sosa, which is a name I don't think we've said before, yeah. um, as well as Cy Kyle. More than just a couple. And the clue was low-slung rocket, which I guess was like a bit easier than I thought it would be. But, yep, yeah, like, people totally got yeah. it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and we went through a couple of different clues. And, uh, David, you, you came up with this one. And I, I definitely think this is better than the other ones that we had. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, good clue. All right, this week in spaceflight history is the 7th of July, 1998. It was the first orbital launch from a submarine. So, the vehicle, the the launch vehicle was called Chateel, and Chateel is based on a ballistic missile of the same name, uh, R29RM Chateel. R29RM is a variant of R29 Visota. Visota is a two stage uh, launch vehicle. The RM variant adds a third stage. So, uh, the ballistic missile has four warheads that are carried in what are called reentry containers, and those are mounted on the bottom of the third stage, so next to the third stage engine. And we don't know a whole lot about the vehicle. Um, for instance, we know that it has liquid propellant, and it's safe to assume that it is storable liquid propellant, but we don't know what propellants they are. Um, we can guess probably UDMH. Uh, and NMH. But also there is some talk about the third stage jettisoning its main engine and having having smaller engines that it uses to complete its uh, its uh, final trajectory. I'm not hundred percent sure. Like I said, it's you know it's military equipment, so good luck. So the commercial version or the the civilian version of R-29RM is just called Chateel And what they do is they remove the warheads from the third stage, obviously. And they also remove some antennas from the vehicle. So I guess they don't need as good tracking precision or, or I guess uh, uh, abort capabilities. I'm not 100% sure. This mission was called Chateel one It carried... Uh, those those re-entry canisters. It it uses uh, deployment canisters instead. And in this case, it it just had one uh, deployment container. um, And then they filled the rest of the space basically with uh, instrumentation uh, to learn more about how well the vehicle performed going to orbit. Because, you know, they had to change uh, the trajectories and everything because the intention was not to bring it back down to, to the Earth. It had two payloads. Um, they were stacked one on top of each other in the same container. Um, they were called TUBSAT-N and TUBSAT-N1. TUB is an acronym for Technical University of Berlin, which is where they were uh, designed and constructed. And they were paid for by uh, DRL, the German Space Agency. They were stacked, um, deployed as a single stack, and then they separated after they were deployed. They're really small, uh, vehicles. This is back in 1998, so they don't conform to the CubeSat standard, but they're, they're basically flat squares. Um, TubSat N was larger, uh, than TubSat N1, but they both perform the same tasks. Uh, They were data relays. Um, They were able to track uh, animal transponders, um, you know, like wildlife transponders. And specifically, they had to be some of the larger transponders. The smaller ones couldn't be seen. But what's interesting is that there are some stolen, like uh, like car... Uh, security transponders uh, like LoJack that apparently operate on the same frequency or close enough to it that they were able to track stolen cars with these uh, mm-hmm. with these data <laughs> relays. And then they also did some uh, earth observation. I don't believe in visual, but they were looking at snowfall and and things like that. Uh, so, like I said, tubsat N was larger of was the larger of the two, and it's still in orbit. And one, the smaller the two, uh, reentered back in two thousand.
0: And there you go. That's This Week in spaceflight History. This was a cool one because I don't think that any of us could believe that we hadn't covered it before. (laughs) Yeah. You know, a rocket launched from a submarine, an orbital rocket.
1: Yeah. And and so, Shatil launched a second time, but as far as I know, only two orbital launches have ever occurred from under the ocean. Cool. So, what is our clue for next week? All right. Next week in 1975, the clue is, how long does it take an astronaut To flip a patch upside down. The answer, of course, is 7.5 hours. Duh. I don't, I don't know why you didn't know that off the top of your head. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Okay, so next week in 1975, how long does it take an astronaut to flip a patch upside down, seven and a half hours? I, I have no idea. Mm. But if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck.
1: Good luck, everybody.
0: Let's move right on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just two things.
2: First up on July 8th, we will have a Falcon 9, uh, Block 5. That'll be taking uh, Starlink 9, which is the ninth official batch of Starlink satellites, uh, the 10th launch overall. And um, it'll also have a rideshare that'll carry two uh, Black Sky Earth Imaging satellites. And uh, you can uh, expect to see this again uh, on July 8th at 1615 UTC, um, instantaneous launch window, and it will be launching out of uh, 39A at the Cape.
0: Maybe this time I'll get to see a Starlink train, Mm -hmm. which I still have yet to Mm -hmm. see. So next up on uh, July 14th is the Emirates Mars mission on an H-2A. So this is launching out of Tanagashima Space Center in Japan. So this is a Mars mission, which is pretty cool, by the United Arab Emirates, and uh, it is called Hope, and it is a Mars orbiter. So it's just going, you know, to some kind of an orbit about the red planet. I'm not sure exactly what. I don't know. Don't know what it's going to do, but I guess it's more oh. like an imager as well. Do you know? It's, it says
2: it's a wide elliptical orbit between 22 and 44,000 kilometers.
0: Okay. Wow. Okay. And we, we talked about it's, it uh a couple we? months ago.
2: Oh.
0: Yeah. I, I, apparently I've totally it, forgotten.
2: <laughs> it's got a, if you check out the launch library, it's got a, a quick and dirty rundown of the uh, instruments on it: an imager and a pair of spectrometers.
0: That mission, like I said, is uh, July 14th, and it's launching at 2051 uh, UTC. Um, in fact, it's 2051 in 27 seconds, so a very specific instantaneous launch window. But uh, and that'll be at a decent time of day. That'll be like 4:51 in the afternoon afternoon on the east coast so check that one out
2: and we also have uh, an event you can't watch but an event you can uh, keep uh, you can just be aware of keep tabs <laughs> so on, on yeah. uh yeah keep tabs on so on Ce- uh,
1: celebrating your own home is what you can do
2: exactly crack one open for the parker solar probe as it <laughs> completes its third of seven Venus flybys on July 11th. And so this, uh, right, the big thing was that all these flybys get it into a tighter and tighter orbit. And so this one is going to bring it down to where its, um, what's it called, its uh, orbital distance will be reduced from 19.4 uh, million kilometers to 14.2 million kilometers as it gets closer and closer in. And so they'll have another two perihelions. So those are the perihelion distances that I'm mentioning. And, uh, yeah. And so you won't have another fly by Venus until, uh,
0: 2021. All right, so those are your upcoming space flood events. So time to deorbit, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our
2: $5 Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You
2: can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. for orbital podcasts on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.